Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, we are gearing up for our Christmas here. Uh, yeah, so last week of, of the season, I guess, uh, Chris Burns will be in while I'm on Christmas, but I will be here Christmas Eve and Christmas. Uh, I will be, I'll be making sure you have a good Christmas show with good Christmas music, still picking out some final tunes, um, but uh, we'll be here. Now, I am going to mostly avoid impeachment. We'll get to it eventually. There is uh, plenty of audio about impeachment, but, um, I, you know, I might as well go on and play Jerry Nadler here, just so you you have set up uh, of this. Jerry Nadler was on... Uh, the talk shows over the weekend making the rounds, explaining the impeachment process, uh, where things stand. He and and uh, Doug Collins both uh, were out there discussing the situation and uh, where we needed to go and how things were going to shape up. Here's Nadler. I want you and our viewers to listen to something that you said that is during Dana the Bash, by the way. of Bill Clinton in 1998. <laughs> There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment substantially supported by one of our major political parties and largely opposed by the other. Such an impeachment would lack legitimacy, would produce divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come. So right now, you are moving forward with impeachment proceedings against the Republican president without support from even one congressional Republican. Is it fair to say that this impeachment, in your words from back then, will produce divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come? No, I think what puts bitterness and divisiveness into our politics is the conduct of the president who calls, uh, who, who questions the patriotism uh, of people who don't agree with him, who calls political opponents human scum, who talks about the fake press, who derides the judiciary. None of those things are impeachable. Who, who attacks all our democratic institutions. Um, and the fact of the matter is that the polling says that 70% of the American people know that what he did was wrong. And uh, yes, it will be up to, it's up to us now in the House and presumably will be up to the senators to see if uh, we will and if the and senators will uh, put uh, the welfare of the country and patriotism above partisan considerations so you, or not. You are willing to impeach the president with no Republican votes, correct? We are going to impeach the president. If we're going to impeach the president, we will impeach him on <laughs> adequate, <laughs> you know and, they and are. urgent grounds to defend our democratic republic. And if there's and no Republican votes... So be it. It's up. It's up to them to decide whether they want to be patriots or partisans. Patriots or partisans. See, okay. So let's just. It's hard to take these guys seriously when you know they're going to vote for impeachment. You know Nadler is going to vote for articles of impeachment, and you are going to have them still say, "Well, I'm. I'm not actually decided. We're. We're not sure, but." If the Republicans don't come along, they're traitors to their country. Here, here's Doug Collins. I'm not trying to, to do this. Last week when Nancy Pelosi said, write the articles, the fact-finding was done. Everything yeah. was over at that point. Now it's just writing it and to try and convince enough Democrats and American people that what they're doing is right and they're having a hard time with it. Congressman, real quick, do you expect any Republicans to vote for impeachment and do you expect all Democrats to vote for impeachment? 
At this point, I don't expect any uh, Republican to vote for impeachment. We've seen the, in the, our votes early on the inquiry, and it's actually gotten worse for the Democrats since then. And there'll be at least probably two that have already said they're probably voting uh, for it. So the only thing that's going to be bipartisan in this is a bipartisan against impeaching this president, not bipartisan for impeaching this president. That's the Democrats' problem. Good luck selling that in a year. Yeah, uh, this is the problem here. Everybody's minds are made up. I don't know that it's going to have an impact next year. Uh, There's polling out in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin that impeachment hurts the Democrats. It's from a Republican pollster, though, so I'm not sure. But we'll we'll circle back to this issue. But minds are already made up. I'm just not sure... Why anyone, and the media, of course, is, is obsessed with impeachment today. I just, while, while I've been sitting here talking, hang on, I got this push alert from CNN. It just came through. Uh, where's Where did I put my cell phone? I can't see it all on my watch. Here we go. This just came through as I was talking. Uh, watch live. The Democrats' drive to impeach Trump kicks into high gear as lawyers from both sides present evidence at a House Judiciary Committee hearing. But it's not really both sides producing evidence, is it? It's, it's not. It's one side producing evidence or, or at least statements based on the evidence already seen. That's where we are with this. I, I'm not sure why we need to waste our time with with uh, spectacle and coverage uh, right now. So I, I've I've had my say. I realize I'm saying we don't need to waste time, and here I am wasting time on it uh, just to explain for those who are coming in. Because you know, one of the phenomena I, I have in in social media on at theresurgent.com and here on radio is the people who call in and why aren't you talking about this? this is the most important story. Why? Clearly this works against your side, and that's why you're avoiding it. So I'm not avoiding it. I'm just telling you, minds are already made up. What's the point? Now, we will move on to what actually is the biggest story of the day. And it, it came over the weekend. I shouldn't say it's the biggest story of the day because arguably the Washington Post story on Afghanistan is, and we will get to that as well here in a minute. But first and foremost, up front, I want to make sure that while I have a captured audience of people still getting to their offices in some cases, or you're tuning in, we've got to we got to cover the story. The New York Times had it this weekend, and, and I am sensitive to this when my son's 11th birthday is today. And he plays Fortnite on iPad and Xbox, and he plays Minecraft. For those of you who, uh, I don't know where you've been living, Minecraft, a lot of people may not know. Uh, Fortnite is hard to miss these days. Fortnite is a first-person shooter game, and the concept is actually very cool. You get on the internet with a bunch of other people, and your job is to be the last man standing for the most part, and you can build. You you build up little forts and contraptions. I, I don't play it. My son has tried to teach me. I'm terrible at it. Uh, I get killed. Um, It's been around so long now. People are not very friendly to the new guys uh, being on the show. So um, in any event, what happens is in Fortnite, you... Um, you, you fire up, uh, the game, they give you a costume, they give you some basic weaponry and you can go into the game. You can find the small guns. You can find the large guns. You can find houses to stay in. There's a map where you can sail around the world, land in certain places and, and shoot it up. Um, for those who want to be in the game and just hide so that they can't be found so they can be the last man standing. There's a storm that a 
approaches and you gotta essentially the storm corrals everyone into a smaller and smaller location so you're forced to play or be killed by the storm and the the thing that sets it apart is that it does not matter how rich you are it does not matter how much money you have what matters is your skill So I could be a billionaire and I could not pay any money to get a better weapon. I cannot pay any money uh, to get more skill. I cannot pay more money to get an advantage over anyone else. You can pay money to the game and and they make tons of money. Uh, You can upgrade your costume to a better costume. Uh, You're essentially all the boys become girls and all the girls become boys and the boys got to pay to become a girl or boys got to pay to have their boy costume. There there are some, you can be a llama. You can be a llama that is like, looks like a pinata. There are a few other things. Um, you can pay for dance moves and, and other little tricks, but you cannot pay for better weaponry. That's that's the key here. You cannot pay for better skills. And that's the genius of the game is it's a very level playing field and you're playing online with a bunch of other people. Now, that one's more common. Minecraft is different. Minecraft was originated years ago. It's been bought by Microsoft now. And Minecraft is uh, you're essentially a building world. So you go into a world that is randomly generated. It could be desert. It could be jungle. It could be plains. um, It it could be a mesa. That's the rare one my son wants us to know. Uh, And I play it with him. And then you mine. You dig down into the ground and you find iron and diamonds and gold and and emeralds and, and redstone. You cut down trees. And with the trees, you cut them down and you build crafting tables and you turn them into uh, lumber and then into sticks and you can make torches and houses and you can mine for granite and make houses. You can go into a create mode and my son goes into create mode and he builds these really elaborate uh, houses. The kid is going to be an architect when he grows up. He has learned how to uh, take the half blocks and, and tile roofs and floors. And it's just, it's incredible what the kid does. He just turned 11 today. He's been doing this since he was about eight years old. Uh, he loves this game, although uh, more and more of his friends are moving to the shooter game. So this is the one I play with him more. It, it's my skill level. Uh, there are little monsters that come out at night that you can kill, but otherwise you just, you dig, you build, but you don't dig straight down or you fall into lava. That's Minecraft. Now, I, it was not my intention to give you a dissertation on these, but you need to understand a couple of things about Minecraft, like with uh, Fortnite, is you can go into realms and worlds, realms, and there are other people who can come in there. And you can play in worlds online with hundreds, if not thousands of other people. You see where this is going now, don't you? There have been more and more cases, and the New York Times has a big story about several of them this weekend, of older people coming online and uh, enticing boys in particular, but girls as well, uh, into attempted sexual relationships. We have a rule in our house that is highly and aggressively enforced. My kid can play online with his friends whose accounts I must know or with me. 
he is not allowed to play uh, generally where he is connected to the internet with a bunch of other people. Uh, he, one of his the games that he also likes to play is is uh, Plants vs. Zombies. It started out as an iPad game, and now it's a first-person shooter game on Xbox and PlayStation where you play as either a plant or a zombie uh, trying to kill each other, and you can play in worlds where um, there are a bunch of other people. And you can hear them talking. And I first became aware of this when I was headed up the stairs. He was probably eight years old, nine years old. And I heard someone yelling profanity and it did not sound like him. And I darted into the playroom and it was somebody online playing with kids. And it was clearly a grown up playing with the kids. And he was cussing because the kids kept nailing him uh, and immediately learned how to turn that off in the game so that he could not do that anymore with a bunch of other people. And it's hard if you don't know, if, if you don't get on Google and, and look at this, there, there are problems. Well, here's the thing, and this is where I'm going with this, and, and I apologize and, and thank you for your patience with this. Most of your game consoles these days and your iPads and your iPhones and the like have cameras. What the New York Times is, is noting and documenting are a series of stories where uh, young boys are playing games and there are older people that they befriend in the games over time. And over time, those older people allege that if the kid does not have more contact with them, they're going to expose them on the internet to their friends because they've been, they allege they've been hacking the boy's camera on his Xbox or PlayStation and has taken pictures of them doing embarrassing things. He either scratching their crotch or exposing themselves or picking their nose or some such embarrassing little things to, to pull them in to be better friends, to harass them essentially, first teasing, then more mocking, then uh, threats to pull them in. And there have been several cases now where young boys have either, there have been attempts to kidnap them or lure them into sexual relationships uh, because of uh, the interactions online and the parents know about the predatory behavior. That's the thing. Every parent who has a child online, more likely than not now, has heard the stories about the predators online. And what you tell your kid is that someone lures themselves in uh, by pretending to be a kid. And then in luring them in to be a kid, they get trapped. What's happening now is very interesting that it's no longer adults pretending to be kids. It's adults being adults and, and getting everybody comfortable with the person being an adult. The parents are comfortable. Hey, this seems like an okay guy. Uh, we, we don't necessarily know him, but he's, he's clean. He doesn't cuss and he's just, he's playing with other people. There are other grownups in the game. And over time that trust devolves into an abusive situation with the kid online. This, this goes to, I, I woke up this weekend, uh, I, I was actually up in, in um, Bartow County for a good portion of Friday. State Senator Bruce Thompson has an amazing event I'll tell you about here when we come back. Uh, but I came home and the entire social media feed that I had on, on Twitter was debating whether or not to ban porn. A bunch of conservatives, some have suggested the government should now get involved in banning porn. 
Uh, we, I, I, I want to talk about that. I have nothing to add to the online conversation. I'll share my thoughts with you guys. Uh, but it, it, it buried the story from the New York Times that needs to be exposed uh, because I suspect every single one of you, and, and this is this is one of the most amazing things here, and it's why I've got to redouble my efforts with my kids. Every single parent knows that there are predators online trying to get your kids. Some don't realize it can be had through Fortnite or Minecraft that you avoid other things, but it's happening more and more. And I got to tell you, as a parent, it concerns me that the parents being interviewed are not dumb people. And they're not absent parents, and they're not letting the devices babysit their kids, which is my preconceived notion that the kids who are getting into trouble are the kids whose parents are letting them be on the device unmonitored and and, uh, all day, which honestly, there have been a few times lately where that's been me. But it's not those parents who are having the problems. It's the ones who are engaged, who do pay attention, who themselves are being taken advantage of by people met online or their, their kids think they're safe. Because they know going into the situation, this isn't someone pretending to be a kid and they're okay and they've developed a relationship with them. You got to be mindful of your kids. You got to make sure they know there's a webcam on them with the Xbox and the PlayStation and the iPad. You got to understand that they've got to have some limits here. Uh, This is a growing phenomenon and it appears not to be getting better, but to be getting worse. And there's really no way to curtail it short of banning adults from playing these games, which nobody's going to do. It's a dreadful situation out there for people. It is Eric Erickson. Uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback from some of you over the ginger molasses cookie recipe last week. I'm glad you liked it. Um, I haven't decided what I'll send out this week, uh, but if you want to be surprised, uh, text recipe to 33777. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. On Friday, I got asked to go up to Bartow County um, I had been in Atlanta uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, so I drove up. I didn't realize it was like two hours from there back to my house uh, in Macon. Um, but so I went up to Bartow County uh, to State Senator Bruce Thompson's house. I, I got to commend him seriously. Uh, a couple of years ago in Bartow County, they realized they were, and all of you should really just, just follow along with me here. Uh, there's a lesson to be learned here. They realized that they were having serious deficiency problems in early education reading in Bartow County and that the teachers in the county school system were overwhelmed because of lack of volunteers. And so they tried to reach out to local churches and a lot of the churches had no relationship with one another. So the Bruce Thompson got it in his head to start having all the preachers over for dinner. And they started it out with a small group, and it got uh, bigger. And it was there were 89 pastors at his home on Friday night, and there would have been more than 120. But uh, in uh, northern Cherokee County, which also represent is part of his district, uh, there was illness going through several of the churches, and so they declined to come because they didn't want to get everybody sick. Uh, but there were Catholic. Orthodox, Methodist, uh, Jewish rabbis, uh, Mormon, uh, Reformed, uh, Pentecostal, Charismatic, non-denominational, Black, White, uh, African Methodist, Episcopal, Anglican. It was it was everybody. As 89 pastors and their wives or or husbands in some cases uh, were there. 
and it was there was nothing no politics at all it was all just about these pastors coming together face to face many of them look at each other as heretics uh, oftentimes they have fundamental disagreements uh, on theology but they are all involved in seeking the welfare of the community in which they live and so Bruce brought them all together face to face uh, if nothing more than to have a conversation and good food, five-course meal. He had a couple of speakers. I was one of them between the courses. Uh, absolutely non-political, nothing involving politics at, at dinner. And it was a great time. I was I was thoroughly impressed. The school superintendent spoke to this group and said, since they've started doing this dinner every year and the pastors in the community have started meeting more and more on their own initiative, that they now have volunteers in every classroom in every school in the county and the reading rates of third graders has gone up measurably which is quite impressive uh that just putting people face to face in a room makes a huge difference and kudos to bruce thompson for doing this i was delighted to be invited it was a very good night up there in bartow county when we come back this afghanistan story in the washington post really troubling stuff yeah, you can text show to 33777 and, and get the daily email, subscribe to the podcast, all that. If you text recipe to 33777, yeah, 33777, uh, recipe, you will get uh, my weekly recipe list. You know, somebody at that, that dinner in Bartow County, welcome back, I guess, if you're just tuning in, it's Eric Erickson. Uh, the phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Uh, I was asked on Friday night in Bartow County uh, why I do this recipe, is that it's somewhat unusual for a political talk show to do something like that. And the answer is very uh, simple. I, I don't think that this should just be a political show. There's plenty of other stuff out there that we should talk about, although it is a news program and I try to get the, uh, the news of the day out of the way. But I also think increasingly we live in a world where we are divided deeply on partisan lines and, and the nation has become very tribal. And I am a firm believer that one of the ways to transcend that partisan tribalist divide is to have fellowship with one another, even though we may disagree on the politics of the day. Now, I, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, we'll all just get along. Uh, there are people who you absolutely would not want to break bread with, and there are people I would not want to break bread with, but party uh, and political beliefs should not be the dividing line. Listen, I, I, there are, I can think off the top of my head of distinctly six right now, six people on my side of the aisle whose politics I align with, who there is no way I would want to sit around the kitchen table and have dinner with them. Um, and it, it has nothing to do with partisanship. But by and large, if we all made an effort of reaching out and breaking bread with one another and getting to know each other outside of politics, uh, we would be able and, and be willing to give a little more latitude to each other on when we do disagree politically. And increasingly, we've created communities of our own online that look just like us, uh, think just like us, and so we don't encounter people on the other side anymore. And that makes it very, very easy for all of us to view the other side as bad and not just opponents. Uh, believe it or not, uh, with few exceptions, there are people on the, most people on the left uh, just have a different worldview 
and have different views on what would make the country better. There are certainly those who do want to ruin the country, but by and large, it is people who just want to make the country better. And you and I can disagree with them, uh, but they're political opponents. So that, that's why I do the recipe is we should all be willing to bake, break bread with other people. And to the extent that I can encourage you to get in the kitchen and cook uh, and provide food, not just for yourself and your family, but for your friends and neighbors, uh, then uh, so much the better. Now, let's get into this story. Uh, U.S. officials have misled the public about Afghanistan for years. This is a multi-year effort by the Washington Post involving multiple lawsuits to get documents. It's being called a a modern Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers were the papers. uh, There was that uh, Tom Hanks movie, the Steven Spielberg movie about the Post, where the Pentagon Papers were revealed to have documented the Pentagon's inside knowledge that the war in Vietnam was lost. Uh, This is a very similar to that, the Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. U.S. officials said they were making progress. They were not, and they knew it. What's so interesting here is that uh, this is yet again the media that has always said there's no scandal in the Obama administration shows time and time again it was the Obama administration essentially providing false information, not just the Obama information and not just the Obama administration. It goes beyond them to the Bush administration and now into the Trump administration. Let me read to you the beginning here. A confidential trove of government documents obtained by the Washington Post reveals that senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable. The documents were generated by a federal examining uh, project examining the root failures of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. The U.S. government tried to shield the identities of the vast majority of those interviewed for the project and conceal nearly all of their remarks. The Post won the release of the documents under the Freedom of Information Act after a three-year legal battle. In the interviews, more than 400 insiders offered unrestrained criticism of what went wrong in Afghanistan and how the United States became mired in nearly two decades of warfare. With a bluntness rarely expressed in public, the interviews lay bare pin-up complaints, frustrations, and confessions, along with second-guessing and backbiting. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing, Douglas Lute, a three-star army general who served as the White House's Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, told government interviewers in 2015. He added, what are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost, Lute added, blaming the deaths of U.S. military personnel on bureaucratic breakdowns among Congress, the Pentagon, and the State Department, who will say this was in vain? Since 2001, more than 775,000 U.S. troops have deployed to Afghanistan, many repeatedly. Of those, 2,300 died there, and 20,589 were wounded in action. The interviews, through an extensive array of, of voices, bring into sharp relief the core failings of the war that persists to this day. They underscore how three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, and their military commanders have been unable to deliver on their promises to prevail in Afghanistan, with more, most speaking on the assumption that their remarks would not become public. 
U.S. officials acknowledged that their warfighting strategies were fatally flawed and that Washington wasted enormous sums of money trying to remake Afghanistan into a modern nation. The interviews also highlight the U.S. government's botched attempt to curtail runaway corruption, build a competent Afghan army and police force, and put a dent in Afghanistan's thriving opium trade. The U.S. government has not carried out a comprehensive accounting of how much it has spent on the war in Afghanistan, but the costs are staggering. And on it goes. Several of those interviews described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. Every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Bob Crowley, an Army colonel who served as a senior counterinsurgency advisor to U.S. military commanders in 2013 and 14, told government interviewers. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right, and we became a self-licking ice cream cone. In 2014, at the direction of John Sopko, who led the Office of Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Resources, uh, the agency departed from its usual mission of performing audits and launched a side venture titled Lessons Learned. The $11 million project was meant to diagnose policy failures. The Lessons Learned staff interviewed 600 people with firsthand experience. The report, written in dense bureaucratic prose and focused on an alphabet soup of government initiatives, left out the harshest and frankest criticism from the interviews. And so the Post sued, and it got the documents, and it reviewed everything. James Dobbins, a former senior diplomat for the U.S. who served as special envoy to Afghanistan under Bush and Obama, told government interviewers, we don't invade poor countries to make them rich. We don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic. We invade violent countries to make them peaceful, and we failed in Afghanistan. Therein lies the problem. Why did we invade Afghanistan? We have so far been removed, 18 years on, Here's the issue. The Taliban set up shop in Afghanistan. It was a radical fundamentalist Islamic state. It blew up uh, ancient landmarks. It enslaved people. It booted girls out of uh, out of schools, and it allowed Al Qaeda to sh- set up shop in Afghanistan. It helped fund them and train them so they could carry out terrorist attacks in the United States. And so the United States invaded to end the Taliban. And there were plenty of warnings at the time about the Russians, but we pridefully decided we were more competent and skilled than the Russians. And so we decided to engage in Afghanistan and and assumed we would be more successful than the British in the 1800s and early 1900s or the Russians in the 70s into the early 80s. And uh, it was once called Russia's Vietnam. And now we've been there for 18 years and we don't have the death toll that we suffered in Vietnam, but we have plenty. Uh, We have plenty of wounded soldiers and we've been there for 18 years and the country is still not stable. The Post also obtained hundreds of pages of classified memos about the Afghan war dictated by Donald Rumsfeld between 2001 and 2006. Dubbed snowflakes by Rumsfeld and his staff, the memos are brief instructions or comments that the Pentagon boss dictated to his underlings several times a day. Rumsfeld made a select number of his snowflakes public in 2011, posting them online uh, in conjunction with his memoir, Known and Unknown, but most remain secret. In 2017... 
a nonprofit research institute based in George Washington University, the Defense Department began reviewing and releasing the remainder of those. Together, between the Inspector General interviews and the Rumsfeld memos pertaining to Afghanistan, there's a secret history. Worded in Rumsfeld's brush style, many of the snowflakes foreshadow problems that continue to haunt. I may be impatient. In fact, I know I'm impatient, he wrote in one memo. We are never going to get the U.S. military out of Afghanistan unless we take care to see that there is something going on that will provide the stability necessary for us to leave. Help, he wrote. That was April 17th, 2002, six months in. Here's the problem. Afghanistan is not a developed nation. It is tribal, it is rural, it is desert, it is religious, it is uh, dependent on a drug trade. It used to not be until the Taliban uh, destroyed their economy, but opium has always been a part of it. And a lot of American leaders went into Afghanistan thinking, in addition to we need to kill off the Taliban, which we never did successfully, we need to elevate them onto the world stage. We need to provide them stability. We need to help their government structure itself. We need to provide them a democratic way of life. They, they used to have a monarch. Didn't want to bring back the monarch. Uh, they, they wanted a, a first world democracy in a place that's never had it. We substituted our values for their own. It was obvious from the beginning. There were plenty of warnings, including Donald Rumsfeld was warning about that, that we that's not the way we should go. And yet that's what we did. And it, it's 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 crazy that 18 years on, we're still there. And no one really seems to understand why we're there anymore. The Washington Post looked at all of these interviews. And what they discovered is that what I just told you is a common assessment. No one seems to know what the goal is there. Rumsfeld complained October 8th, 2003 in, in one of his Snowflake memos. The reason that Rumsfeld called these memos Snowflake... By the way, I've met Rumsfeld several times. He's a super guy. I, I thoroughly have enjoyed my time with Donald Rumsfeld. He's a great, great man. He and his wife both are super people. Uh, and, and Rumsfeld would write these memos, and essentially his thoughts during the day, he would dictate them, and they would be typed on a white paper, distributed, and they would come so often during the day. Um, he was old school, used a dictaphone. I wish I could. And uh, so they started being called snowflakes because there were some days people would get so many of them. It was like snowflakes raining down. So they called his memos snowflakes. And uh, one unnamed advisor from an interview in 2017, uh, the, the Washington Post says they thought I was going to come to them with a map to show them where the good guys and bad guys live. It took several conversations for them to understand that I did not have the information in my hand. At first, they kept asking, who are the bad guys? Where are they? The view wasn't any clearer from the Pentagon. In September, on September 8th, 2003, in one of Rumsfeld's snowflakes, he wrote, I have no visibility into who the bad guys are. We are woefully deficient in human intelligence. As commanders-in-chief, Bush, Obama, and Trump all promised the public the same thing. They would avoid falling into the trap of nation-building in Afghanistan, and yet we failed miserably. We've allocated more than $133 billion to build up Afghanistan, more than it's spent, adjusted for inflation, to revive the whole of Western Europe after World War II. We tried to create from scratch a democratic government in Kabul, modeled after their own and after ours in Washington. It was a foreign concept to the Afghans who were accustomed to tribalism, monarchism, communism, and Islamic law. 
Our policy was to create a strong central government, which was idiotic because Afghanistan does not have a history of a strong central government. The time frame for creating a strong central government is 100 years, which we didn't have. And we flooded the country with more aid than it could absorb. During the peak of fighting from 2009 to 2012, U.S. lawmakers and military commanders believed that the more they spent on schools, bridges, canals, and other civil works projects, the faster security would improve. Aid workers told government interviewers it was a misjudgment akin to pumping kerosene on a dying campfire just to keep the flame alive. 90% of what they spent, according to the U.S. Agency for International Development, was overkill. And many aid workers, interestingly enough, didn't blame the president. They blamed Congress for a mindless rush to spend money in Afghanistan. Boy, does that sound familiar. Congress always wanted to spend. Um, We essentially have in Afghanistan a tribal kleptocracy. And our government poured money in to prop it up and would not let it collapse. We didn't want to admit failure. And if nothing else, maybe it's time now we're, we're going to be forced to reconsider Afghanistan and have to rethink it. Think about all of the people in the military, all of your sons and daughters who have gone into the military, all of your friends who have gone into the military and are headed to Afghanistan for what at this point? It is clear we have no real objective anymore in Afghanistan. We went in to beat the Taliban because they had become a safe haven for al-Qaeda, which used... Afghanistan to fund and launch 9-11. We're still there. Al-Qaeda's gone. Osama bin Laden is dead. Why are we still there? It's a relevant question. Look, we got other stuff we need to talk about, including a disruption coming to Common Core in Georgia I want to get to. But there's, I, I got I to gotta read you just one more section of this Washington Post story, and I really commend it to you. I, I hope you might spend some time with it. They've got it on their website. You can get it for free at WashingtonPost.com. Christopher Kalinda, an Army colonel who deployed Afghanistan several times and advised three U.S. generals in charge of the war, said the Afghan government, led by President Hamid Karzai, had self-organized into a kleptocracy, that is a government of theft and corruption, by 2006, and that U.S. officials failed to recognize the lethal threat it posed. I like to use a cancer analogy, Kalinda told government interviewers. Petty corruptions like skin cancer, there are ways to deal with it and you'll probably be just fine. Corruption within the ministries, higher levels like colon cancer, it's worse, but if you catch it in time, you're probably okay. Kleptocracy, however, is like brain cancer, it's fatal. By allowing corruption, this is the key paragraph. You need to understand those for the context. Listen to this paragraph. By allowing corruption to fester, U.S. officials told interviewers they helped destroy the popular legitimacy of the wobbly Afghan government they were fighting to prop up. With judges and police chiefs and bureaucrats extorting bribes, Many Afghans soured on democracy and turned to the Taliban to enforce order. Our biggest single project, sadly and inadvertently, of course, may have been the development of mass corruption. Crocker, who served as the U.S. Uh, diplomat in Kabul from in 2002 and then from 2011 to 2012, told government interviewers, he added, once it gets to the level I saw when I was out there, it's somewhere between unbelievably hard and outright impossible to fix. Not the case. There's one other aspect to this that should be covered. 
honestly. It will be taken as a partisan point. It already is, as people have pointed it out this morning. Many of the interviews that were conducted uh, in this review that has been obtained by the Washington Post were conducted and many of the decisions made during the Obama administration. Democrats have peddled a mythology now for a number of years that the Obama era was corruption-free. There was, there was nothing. There were no problems. That Nothing ever happened. And we know that's not true. Not only do we know that's not true, we know the media willfully helped cover up a lot of the problems within the Obama administration. The details of Fast and Furious, the details of the IRS uh, investigating conservative groups and harassing conservative groups and stopping them from getting nonprofit status. And now this. It's unbelievably hard what they did in Afghanistan. Our military leaders were rudderless, by and large. The Afghans turned quickly to corruption. And we tried to give them a government that they didn't want and, frankly, didn't deserve. And a lot of this was covered up by the Obama administration, which knew it wasn't working, and pushed out stats to make it look like it was working. And that's actually a problem. Uh, It's a problem on the press side because the press was willing to believe it from Barack Obama's team in a way they wouldn't have been willing to believe it from anyone else. It's a problem because it clearly was a lie, and it's a problem because it it just completely collapsed. Um, We got all sorts of problems in Afghanistan now, and it's very clear the mission isn't working. And so the question for the Trump administration is going to be, do you tweak it? Do you change it? Do you change direction and goals or do you just get out? I got to tell you, we got a family friend who is is headed back to Afghanistan uh, at the end of the year. The beginning of January is heading back over there. and, And I'm increasingly wondering why is anybody going over there? They clearly don't need to be there at this point if we have no goal in Afghanistan other than propping up a kleptocracy. It's time for me to tell you about my favorite toothbrush. Uh, Holiday season is approaching and you can get the Quip. The Quip is actually, it's a great stocking stuffer. It's a great toothbrush. You know, I had one of those $100 Sonic vibrating toothbrushes and you had to take the charger with you. It it was just, it was garbage. Uh, I didn't like it. The brush head was very small. You could not get the brush head on the toothbrush in the back of your mouth to actually clean uh, the, the back of your teeth. The Quip is designed by designers and dentists working together. You can totally tell. It's got sensitive sonic vibrations and a timer with 30 second pulses to guide your routine uh you got the quip floss dispenser it has pre-marked strings so you can always use the right amount uh you got the quip sends you a new brush head every three months they've got a great 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 toothbrush and now flossing as well just go to getquip.com slash erickson to save on gift sets get your first brush head refill pack for free with a refill plan so you get your first brush head refill for free at getquip quip.com slash erickson getquip.com slash erickson it is a great toothbrush it is the toothbrush that i have been using for multiple years my wife and child use it as well I really do recommend Quip. I really am a user, and I was before I started doing this commercial. That's why I really recommend it. GetQuip.com. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, broadcasting live from my flagship station in Athens, Georgia, where 
It was a good, you know, let's just acknowledge it was a good game on Saturday for some of us more than others, not to rub salt on wounds, Georgia fans, my, the side of my family that are Georgia Tech fans, they were all happy about the LSU Georgia game. Um, My good, you know, the downside, honestly, the downside of the Georgia fans leaving the stadium in mass as they did about halftime were the just the, the, the empty seats, um, just the morale for the team had to be even worse. I Honest to goodness, and, and no disrespect intended, I know people are thinking, look, it's, it's over. Uh, we might as well get out of here and beat traffic and go home, go drink, go do something. But I just I don't understand paying that much money for tickets to go to a game like that. And then you leave early. I stay to the bitter end, even if it's a blowout, because you you bought the ticket. Stay, have a good time, enjoy yourselves. Um, but I, I'm sorry for my Georgia uh, friends, and I, you know I root for the dogs unless they're playing LSU. Uh, I am a native of South Louisiana, and I, I watch the game. And I'm always hesitant to watch the game because I'm pretty sure they're going to lose uh, when I watch the game, uh, whether I'm rooting for the dogs or the Tigers. Well, the Tigers will now play what Oklahoma in the um, in the at the Georgia Dome in a couple of weeks, I guess. Uh, LSU, no, yeah, Oklahoma, and then Georgia is going to play Baylor in the Sugar Bowl. That's 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 the stack. Now, uh, I, I don't want to continue dwelling on that, um, but I do want to have a conversation about Common Core. And I try not to talk about Common Core too much because I know uh, people aren't necessarily sure what they think or anything like that. And, and th- they hear it. And oftentimes we should also acknowledge that there are some people who are really unhinged when it comes to Common Core and are convinced it's some sort of backdoor way to bring Sharia into it. Um uh, here's the thing. The state of Georgia has started a panel uh, and an outside uh, commission with voters, with residents of Georgia, with others uh, to look at Common Core or the revised standards of Georgia. And in looking at the revised standards in Georgia, to get rid of anything that ties it to Common Core. This is from uh, Tai Tagami at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The overhaul of the standards that say what students in Georgia must learn about math began in earnest Friday as a hand-picked group met in Atlanta to begin their discussions. Saying education is crucial to the state's economy, Governor Brian Kemp started the meeting with a quick thank you to the volunteer panel. We need your feedback, he said. The 20 students, parents, grandparents, business leaders, current and former educators, local elected officials, and others associated with education will give their recommendations to the 140 teachers coming to Atlanta in the new year to review and revise the state's math standards. Known as the Georgia Standards of Excellence for Mathematics, the guidelines for teachers were adopted as part of the multi-state common core standards in 2010. Then, after they grew controversial, the state revised and renamed them in 2015. At the Georgia GOP's 2013 meeting, activists voted unanimously to urge state leaders 
lawmakers to withdraw from Common Core because it obliterates Georgia's constitutional autonomy. The 2015 changes didn't appease critics, though, with many seeing them as mostly a rebranding that kept Common Core intact. The discontent surfaced at the Georgia GOP convention in May with more than 1,500 delegates crowded a uh, Savannah convention hall and cheered Kemp's promise to dismantle Common Core, reduce high-stakes testing, and take on the education status quo. He and State Superintendent uh, Richard Woods announced a partnership to amend the standards. They pledge Their pledge coincided with the periodic re- review process for the standards, which are updated every five years. The Citizens Review Committee that began meeting Friday was named by Kemp and Woods. The state school superintendent told them they were embarking on one of the most comprehensive dives into a set of standards the state has ever seen. His chief of staff said 99.9% of Georgia mass standards are derived from Common Core. Now, if you don't have kids or your kids are out of school, you don't know what any of this is. And I need to explain it to you because I have kids and my kids suffered through this. My daughter was, we were in a private Christian school connected to our church in Macon. And our daughter's math class and our son's math classes were both common core based using the Georgia standards. My wife has a degree in computer programming. We both have college degrees. Neither of us could help our children with their math homework. Neither of us could. My wife should be able to. She had a background in engineering. My wife's father is a Georgia Tech grad engineer. And my father-in-law could not help our child with her homework. That's how bad it was. It was enraging to all of us to see or a situation where we were essentially pulled away from our children's educational success because we could not help them. And that is the number one complaint with parents whose kids are in Common Core is you can't help your kid anymore. I mean, there, there's a real issue there, just so you understand. Uh, and this is not to be hyperbolic. Uh, let me pull the microphone towards me as I, I pull back from it. Not to be hyperbolic, not to be, not to exaggerate. I'm, I'm trying to find a picture here uh, that, that I need to, to read to you so that you can understand it. I, I can't find it yet, and I won't, don't want to keep distracting myself while I'm trying to also talk to you, but here, here's the situation. Uh, the way Common Core works, one of the things that they do, and it is intentional, is they refer to standard mathematics. Let, let, let me just ask you a question real quick. Um, 11 minus 1. What is 11 minus 1? And, and I'm not great at math. I went to law school so I could avoid math. Let, let me ask you a question. What is 11 minus 1? Do you know how to do 11 minus 1? The answer for those of you who can't do math in your head is 10. 11 minus 1 is 10. And you know that because 1 minus 1 is 0. Drag down the 1 in the left column, and you have a 10. But with Common Core, it's not so simple. With Common Core, you have to add. 
That's right. You have to add. So with Common Core, the way you would do it is you take the top number. The top number is 11. And so you round it now. Round that top number to the nearest whole number. What, are, what, is, what is 11 rounded? Well, 11 rounded is 10. Now add the next number to it. So the next number is 1. So you add 1 and 10 together and you get 11. Okay, you're done. That's it. You're done. There's a problem. Can you see the problem? That, that may sound super simple to you offhand, but what happens when you get 337 minus 201? Then the adding becomes burdensome. And I put a picture up several years ago of our child's homework, and it went viral. I mean, it got thousands and thousands of views online because no one could understand it. It took my kid an entire page. Literally, it took her an entire page to do one subtraction problem. And the Common Core Standards insisted that she learn how to do it. Because the way the Common Core Standards work, the, the, the method, so that you understand the why here, because you do need to understand the why, because they do have a practical reason for it. The method is because they want you to learn a variety of ways to arrive at the same answer. And by arriving at the same answer through multiple ways, you can find the way that you are most comfortable with and in finding the way you are most comfortable with that then over time can become your approach to mathematics and that makes sense let's just acknowledge that that does make some sense you find what you're comfortable with you find the the math way that you're comfortable with and then over time, you can just embrace it and keep with it. But when you're in lower grade levels, they want you to learn every single way. They want you to learn everything. They want you to learn every methodology by which you can add and subtract, multiply and divide. But for parents, it doesn't work. And they intentionally, in a common core, they intentionally and willfully call traditional math methods the granny method. I thought it was just my child's uh, package. She had a terrible everyday math is what it was called. It was a common core system, and it was terrible. It was genuinely terrible. And I thought it was just them. I thought it was, was their uh, way of teaching, and they wanted to ridicule my and my, my wife's way of learning math. Math, and it turns out that's not the case at all. It is every variety of common core uh, does this. Every variety of common core math calls the old methods, the granny method, so that your kids associated with something outdated and outmoded so that they don't ask about it, so that they don't attach to it. And what your kids then learn is that they can't get mom and dad to help them because mom and dad have no ability to help them. And because mom and dad have no ability to help them, they're relying on the school system. They're relying on the government. And, and that is part of it. And it sounds conspiratorial. And I tell you, it sounds nuts when I had someone explain it to me. But I can assure you it is very real. We have lived it in our household where our children knew they could not ask mom and dad for help with homework because we use the granny method. And that is the problem. That is 
how common core functions. The English standards, but particularly the math standards, they pull our children away from being able to ask us for help. They pull our children away from being able to get us to engage in their homework. But it's more than that as well. What's also happening in the situation is that it requires our kids to learn math techniques that don't actually serve them, and it requires our children to engage in math systems that when they get to college, the math professors aren't necessarily going to use. Now, that is relevant as well because there are a lot of, while there are a lot of college professors who helped write Common Core, there are a lot of college professors opposed to Common Core. And because there are a lot of professors who are also opposed to Common Core as much as engaged in Common Core, you have a situation where your kid may go to school with a professor who hates the system and has no respect for it, and your kid is is stuck. It's a terrible system, and now you need to understand why it was designed. There's a logic within Common Core that a child who lives in... Louisiana and moves to Georgia should be on the same page educationally with the kids in Georgia and the kids who live in California and move to, uh, and move to New York should be on the same page. And that makes sense. But the problem here is that in trying to teach our kids these systems, our educational system has taken parents out of the process and made it so we can't help our kids. They have pulled us away, and they're making our kids rely more and more on government. It's a philosophical issue here, where your kids are now relying on their teachers, often government teachers, and the parents have no role in homework anymore. And what has happened in the past number of years since Common Core has come on the scene is our math grades have gone down collectively as a nation. They haven't improved. By taking parents out of the homework structure, our kids are dumber now. And that has everything to do with the good intentions of Common Core. To the phones we go on the road to Charlotte is Jeff. Welcome to the program. Jeff, how are you? Hey, good morning, Eric. Good to speak with you. What's going on? Um, I wanted to call I wanted to call in, reference the um there's some broad swaths being taken in those in that Afghan report, and a lot of it uh, I totally agree with. But a couple of things to remember: our State Department went in, and, and let me give you some background. I, I'm an Afghan vet. Uh, I was in leadership over there. My son has served in Afghanistan. My other son is probably getting ready to serve in Afghanistan. Um, I'd go back to Afghanistan tomorrow, but. Um, the U.S. State Department, and it's and actually under Obama, the DOD, we were so focused on letting the Afghans tell us what the solution was that we ignored what our principles were and what our common sense solutions were. The the, the centralized government thing is what they insisted on because that's what the Russians had had, <laughs> and so they kind of picked up on the bad habits. Totally doomed. If you, 
again, if we can, and you have a situation now where the governors are in the provinces are chosen from the central government and where they are politically, instead of having the local support of the people. Um, and our State Department facilitated all of that. Our State Department facilitated that strong central government, poured all the money in Kabul. And the, 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 the freaking president is more the governor of Kabul than they are the leader of the country. The, the you know George George Bush said it best. It's it is a generational problem in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. The the literate and elite were killed off, or they fled, um, and they literally don't have the skills. And I got to get this in real quick. And when the Obama administration came in, and I've said this before, I, I had a circumstance where as it, the Obama surge was a fraud. And although those troops did go in, the rules of engagement, which have led to a lot of our recent issues with the president's pardons, we had a three-star Marine general come in and tell us in September of 2009 that, that the U.S. was leaving. Now, the American people hadn't been told that. You wouldn't be told that by the president until 2010. Mm-hmm. So you're deploying troops into a combat situation, and you're telling them that we're not going to stay. And you're telling them to let these incompetent Afghans be in charge of all your operations and you can't do anything about them, including uh, minimizing our security to accommodate them, which have led to a lot of your blue on blue and green on blue instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and one other thing is you got to realize, yes, we did totally destroy the Taliban. When we went in there in 2001, 2002, they were defeated. We then brought in our NATO partners and propped them up for the reconstruction effort. And nobody wants to say it, but that was a total failure. A lot of reasons for that. They had their own issues. You know, the Italians maybe want to pay the Taliban, uh, (laughs) but it's very complex. Well, and, and, uh, it, it, it sounds but, like we're, we're at a situation now where we got a bunch of people in the bureaucracy struggling for a solution of, of what to do next. Listen, Jeff, thank you very much for calling in, and thank you for, for you and your family's service. Very much appreciate it. Uh, be safe on the road out there. And, you know, Jeff highlights a great point that it is a, it's a messy situation. Uh, it, it's good for him to point out that the Taliban, we had taken them out, and then other people came in and, and decided to start propping them up. Um it's but what are we going to do if we pull out we leave a vacuum and there is a growing sense from people that maybe we should the president actually wants to do that it seems and the military leaders are talking him out of it but they're going to need to come up with a better plan and they're going to need to resell the idea to the american people because a lot of americans are starting to get frustrated because they think we're just going over there doing nothing and this is not going to help from the washington post it's fundamentally going to undermine the efforts of this administration when we come back, I found the picture during the last commercial break. I, I got to explain this to you so you really get a sense of what I'm talking about on Common Core. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. That's 877-973-7425 if you want to call in and be a part of the program. Uh, I was talking uh, before Jeff called in back to that Afghanistan story. You really do need to read the Afghan story in the Washington Post today, but uh, Brian Kemp and the state super school state school superintendent Richard Wood started a uh, review of the Common Core standards. So here is a Common Core um, problem. I was looking for it, and if I sounded kind of like I was I was rambling, it was because I was trying to find the picture while I was talking, which is never a good idea. Um, 
So this is this is an actual homework assignment from my daughter at her Christian private school that used the state's Common Core standards, which the state stopped calling Common Core, but were still Common Core. You can subtract two numbers by counting up from the smaller number to the larger number. Subtracting this way is called the counting up method. Write the smaller number, count up to the nearest multiple of 10, keep counting up by 10s and 100s, then count up to the largest number. So here, here this, is, this is an actual example of how you would subtract by adding. Subtract 38 from 325 by counting up. Write the smaller number 38 and count up to 325. Circle each number, then you count up. So ignore 325. So 38, uh, where do you get it to the, the closest 10 is 40. So what gets you to 42? So then you circle the two and you get to 40. Now count up to the nearest 100. And what what you got to get up to 100 by going to 60. So now count up to the largest possible 100. That would be, you got to go up to 300. So that's 200. Now count up to the larger number, 25. So then you add the numbers that you you put in there. You would add that you got you had to add a two to the 38 to get to 40, a 60 to the 40 to get to 100, a 200 to the 100 to get to 300, and a 25 to the 300 to get to 325. So two plus 60 plus 200 plus 25 equals 287. Therefore, 325 minus 38 is 287. Did your brain break? Because my brain broke. So you count up to the nearest 10, then you count up to the nearest 100, then you count up to the largest possible 100, and then you count up to the largest number. If you were using thousands, you would do it that way, and ten thousands and so on. And she had learned to do this, and she couldn't understand it. My wife didn't understand it, but here's the thing. The teacher didn't much understand it either. In fact, the teacher told my wife that we just had to get through it. Now, again, why am I spending so much time on this? This is an actual really big issue in the state of Georgia and elsewhere. It is also an issue that if you don't have kids going through it, you probably don't understand. Uh, When I first got started in radio in Atlanta on WSB Radio at night, uh, this issue came up in uh, 2013. It was a big political issue at the time. I'd only been on radio a couple of years. And to this day, I will never forget this phone call, I don't believe. I had a, a black lady call me who was in tears. I mean, she was crying when I got on the phone with her. Her children were in Atlanta public schools. Her husband was nowhere to be found. And she was working multiple jobs just to make a full-time salary, just to keep her family together. Her mother would come over in the mornings to take care of the kids while she went to work. She would come home in the evening, and her time at home with the kids, 
she wanted nothing more than to help her children do their homework, to connect as a parent, doing her job. Her kids had good grades. She was working all day long and wanted to help her kids in the evening. And because the school system moved to Common Core Math, exactly like I'm describing you with my family, she could no longer help. One of the jobs she had was part-time in an accounting office. She knew math. She knew math. She had a background as an accountant. And at the time in the economy, she couldn't get a full-time job. She was working two part-time jobs, one in retail and one working part-time in an accounting office helping out doing clerical work while she was trying to get on her feet. And she called her school and she complained. She had a background in math. She knew math. By the way, this woman, you should know, she has reached out in the last couple of years because I've talked about the story several times. And uh, she has a job now in accounting. Got her life on in got her life in gear. She still maintains her frustration, though. But she couldn't help her kids with math. She's working two part-time jobs to try to make a full-time uh, living to keep her family together. Her mother's helping out with the kids. The husband's nowhere to be seen. She calls the public school. She asks, uh, what are they doing? She can't help. The math doesn't make sense. Her kid's falling behind in math. She's got a background in math. She can't help with the math. And do you know what the school tells her? The school says that the standards have changed to this, to the Common Core, and that they are happy to bring her in at night and teach her how to do this math so that she can help her kids. She is in tears on the phone with me. She's in tears. She's crying on the phone on the radio, angry and frustrated, because what the school is essentially telling her to do is, is she can give up the time she has set aside with her children to spend time with strangers learning how to do a mathematics that she should already know how to do. But the school system has changed it so that she can't do it. They, they've come up with a new system. And not only had they come up with a new system, but in the Atlanta public school as well, they were referring to it as the granny method, her method. And the kids were telling her mom, we can't do the granny method. We'll get in trouble. We can't do old school math, the math that has worked for thousands of years. If you've seen in The Incredibles 2, Mr. Incredible is helping his son while the wife goes off to work and, and uh, the kid's telling his dad, we, we can't do it that way. And the dad says, math is math. How can you change math? This is what he's talking about. Do you know cross uh, multiplication? You've got 3 over 15. Let, let, let me actually do one where the math will work. Uh, 2 over 6 equals x over 12. 2 over 6 equals x over 12. Do you know how to do that? You, you do... 2 times 12 equals 24. 
you divide the 6 into the 24, you get the 4. So 2 over 6 is 4 over 12. Cross multiplication, you you, you multiply. Uh, 2 times 12 is 24. 6 times 4 is also 24. Therefore, it works out. You can't do that in Common Core. That Cross multiplication is grainy math. You can't do that. We did this. We did this with our daughter uh, when she had cross multiplication problems, and she's like, "How are you able to do that so fast?" Well, we were able to do it that fast because that's the way you do it. And she said, that "We're not allowed to do it that way." She knew her multiplication tables, but she wasn't allowed to do it that way. She wasn't allowed to cross multiply. I can't even explain to you the the method that she was supposed to do it. It was a very simple method for us, and yet she was not able to do it. Couldn't figure it out, which is crazy to me. That math is math. How, how does math change? New methodologies. Now, now, here's the underlying problem with Common Core. And this is a philosophical issue. I told you in the last half hour, I'm spending way more time on this than I, I intended to, but, but it's worth you understanding uh, why people object. That there are the nutters out there who say it's backdoor Sharia and stuff like that. That's not really it. The problem here is the reason Common Core came about, there were good intentions that a kid who was in eighth grade in California and his dad gets transferred to Georgia, uh, he should be able to be on the same page as the kids in Georgia. We're, we're a national society where people move, except the data shows us people are actually moving less and less now than in the past. So you're actually less likely to get someone, well, you're, you're pretty likely to get someone moving from California to Georgia. You're not likely to get someone moving from Georgia to California. California is having um, net migration out of the state. But the idea was uh, Fortune 500 companies, they wanted to, to help set math standards and, and English standards that were nationwide uniform. So a kid in one state who moves to another state is on the same level as the other kids. That they decided that was one of the worst things about the workforce of the United States is that depending on where you are in the nation, you could be at a different standard, a different grade level, at a different point in your academic career. And yet everyone was supposed to, to steamroll into the end of 12th grade and get into college and all be at the same point and there was no guarantee that we would that was the that was the logic behind it and it would make sense if we were a nationally homogenized place this time and time again is what trips up so many people on the left uh, they look at other countries that do this and they think we're the same way except we are vastly larger in population than any of these other countries and have a deeper rooted history of federalism and division of states than these other countries. In the UK, everything is homogenized by and large. They restarted parliamentary structures in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, but for the longest time, it was just the parliament in the UK for hundreds of years made all the decisions, and everyone was British. The, the divisions between England and Wales in particular were, were, were not very distinct. Scotland had its own national identity, but still, it was all one country. And here you've got 50 states, and those 50 states have very unique identities. All the people who always lament the fact that Americans are less well-traveled than people. You live in the UK, you're likely to have been in five countries by the time you're 18. You live in the United States, you're in five countries as well. They're just all part of the same union. My goodness, you go to Texas, you've got five countries in Texas. South Texas, East Texas, West Texas, North Texas, the Panhandle of Texas, they're all completely different locations. Go down to Florida. South Florida is a completely different state from the North Florida Panhandle, which is just an extension of Alabama and Georgia. 
South Carolina and North Carolina are completely different entities. West Virginia and Virginia, totally different. But go from West Virginia or Virginia to Colorado or go to California or go to Hawaii or Alaska. You're in completely different countries, even though they're all part of the same union. Sure, we speak the same language. That's the other thing. If you live in Europe, you're likely to speak fluently three languages in this country. We're not because everybody here speaks English. You drive 400 miles from Switzerland. Guess what? You're in one of five different countries. You drive 400 miles from Atlanta. You're still in the United States, but you've gone to Alabama or Mississippi or North Carolina or Tennessee. Completely different cultures. And so that's why Common Core can't work with a national standard when we are not a homogenized nation, but they wanted it to. But here's the underlying philosophical problem with Common Core. The way they did it, the way they designed it, the math standards and the English standards, it's all about making your child a good worker be for a Fortune 500 company. What they did when they created uniform standards is they stripped out the originalism, the entrepreneurialism, and the creativity. It is all testing, it is tested, it is rote, it is memorized patterns and memorized formulas and all the things the Fortune 500 needs in good little worker bees who will never come up with an idea to compete. That's the problem with Common Core. The English standards are no better. I spent a lot of time on the math standards. Let me tell you about the English standards. In the English standards, you had what are called AR tests, the, the Accelerated Reader Program where you would read a book and you would go in and take a test and you would get points. And the more books you read, the more points, you, the more tests you would take, the more points you would get. And the kids at the end of the year who had read the most would get awards. And you know what the kids were doing? They were reading the easiest books possible on their level in order to take the test as quickly as possible and do the best they could to get the most points. The kids were not actually challenged. You know, this is the best laid plans. And, and the idea was, in fact, that your child should be incentivized to read a more advanced book. But if you read a more advanced book that was a multi-chapter book, that took longer. So you took less AR tests. So the kids were reading the cheapest books possible, the, 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 the easiest books possible, the smallest books possible, because they didn't want the challenge. They wanted the AR points. At my kids' new school, they actually used traditional math. My daughter went from not being able to do her math and crying every night with math with my wife. My wife almost screaming every night with math. My daughter's now in algebra. Um, she's actually in the advanced class and she's doing well. She's got straight A's, including in algebra. It's her lowest grade and she's got a 94 in algebra. She gets it. She understands it. She's talking about trigonometry now. She hadn't even gotten into geometry yet. That's next year. And our son now spends his days reading. He plays on his Xbox. He's got his iPad. But he's discovered he likes to read now. He's not doing it for points. He's doing it because he's got to read a certain number of books by the end of the year. And those books, his teachers decided he doesn't have to read like 20 books. He's got to read a history book. He's got to read a, a mystery book. He's got to read a science fiction book. And they got to be multi-chapter books. Find a book he's interested in and read. And as long as he reads from the categories, a nonfiction, a history, a biography, uh, a fictional book on, um, oh, what is it? He's got to read a Western. He's got to read a science fiction book, all these things. He, he's in fifth grade and he reads every day. 
because he's not doing it for AR points. He's doing it because he now enjoys it. He's found books he likes. The teacher just said, go find a sci-fi book and read it. Found what he liked. He reads every day. It's completely different. No more tears in our house over math homework. Common Core, the intention was good, but it was a bunch of bureaucrats who didn't understand the way the American family worked, and they decided they needed to do best for the Fortune 500 company, not for the parents and the kids. And that's why Brian Kemp and Richard Wood are upending it, changing it, um, getting rid of it, and they need to. We need this done, and kudos to them for getting it done. So this weekend, my I was in Atlanta uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I had an event on Wednesday, so I stayed. Um, was there on Thursday, was there on Friday. Had to go to Bartow County for an event with uh, Senator Bruce Thompson uh, in Bartow. Oh man, it's it's you you guys you know living in Macon, you forget just how. Um, diverse Georgia is in terms of geography, the, the, the hill country, the mountains, it's so pretty in North Georgia. I really love it up there. My wife and I keep thinking one day, um, whenever we win the lottery, buy a house up in, in the North Georgia mountains. Uh, I really like the Lake Rabin area where, or Lake Burton, where you can have a mountain and a lake. I like that. Um, but I gotta be a millionaire and I am Definitely not one to be able to build a house on Lake Burton. Or I don't know that there are any lots available. I have to tear something down. But anyway, it's gorgeous up there. And that that's further over the mountains. And, and just to, up in um, Bartow County, you got the high hills. Uh, Barnsley Gardens up in Adairsville is one of my, it, it is my favorite place in the state. I go to Barnsley by myself when I need to decompress. Uh, go hit golf balls on the golf course by myself for a few days. And it, it just is, is just re-energizing to go up there. It was great. But... Um, Going all over the state on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, coming home, and then got home. I didn't get home until almost one thirty in the morning Friday. Slept in on Saturday, got up, and I promised my son, today's his 11th birthday, and I promised him on Saturday I'd take him to Atlanta. Totally forgot the LSU-Georgia game was up there. Traffic was okay going north, though. So we spent the drove back to Atlanta. Uh, was there all day, uh, went by the Cheesecake Factory, got a to-go order of chocolate cake, went to my office uh, and watched part of the LSU-Georgia game before coming home and uh, had football traffic on the way home from the fleeing Georgia fans. But I got home Saturday night and turned on the computer for the first time. I hadn't really seen social media and saw there was a huge argument about banning pornography. And government uh, steps to ban pornography, and it seemed to be a conversation among people on the right. And I just I was like, why is this even happening? Apparently, one conservative uh, pundit on Twitter suggested that conservatives should all rally behind banning porn, and the libertarian conservative pundits said, no, this is ridiculous, it's not going to happen, and the other said, yes, we should, and uh, the legal scholars said, ah, First Amendment, and the other legal scholars pushed back and said, ah, the First Amendment doesn't exist, obscenity, and, and on and on and on it went, and I, I, I suppose I should give you some candid thoughts here in, in a little bit on the particular issue, but then I turned on Twitter this morning, thinking it's either going to be impeachment or it's going to be uh, more porn. And instead, what I've discovered is there is a hot war happening on social media about a Christmas story. 
And is it the greatest Christmas movie of all time or not? You know the Christmas story, the one with the kid who wants the Red Rider BB gun and his dad gets the lamp with the leg and people watch it every year. And I'm a Ralphie and I'm just not sure it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. I'll tell you what the greatest Christmas movie of all time is. Uh, and no, it's not. Um, it, it, it's not a wonderful life. Now, listen, I love It's a Wonderful Life. It's a wonderful. I love Jimmy Stewart. James Stewart, he, he grew up to be called. I love Harvey. I love uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. I, I mean, Jimmy Stewart is just a profound actor. I loved him, and I love It's a Wonderful Life. It is a great movie with Donna Reed, but it is not the best Christmas movie of all time. A Christmas Story is not the best Christmas movie of all time. The best Christmas movie of all time is, you know it, you know it, Die Hard. Bruce Willis and Die Hard. That is the best Christmas movie of all time. It is not open for debate. It's time for me to tell you about my favorite toothbrush. Uh, Holiday season is approaching and you can get the Quip. The Quip is actually, it's a great stocking stuffer. It's a great toothbrush. You know, I had one of those $100 Sonic vibrating toothbrushes and you had to take the charger with you. It it was just, it was garbage. Uh, I didn't like it. The brush head was very small. You could not get the brush head on the toothbrush or the back of your mouth to actually clean uh, the the back of your teeth. The Quip is designed by designers and dentists working together. You can totally tell. It's got sensitive Sonic vibrations and a timer with 30-second pulses to guide your routine. Uh, You got the Quip floss dispenser. It has pre-marked strings, so you can always use the right amount. Uh, you got the Quip sends you a new brush head every three months. They've got a great, 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 great toothbrush and now flossing as well. Just go to getquip.com slash Erickson to save on gift sets. Get your first brush head refill pack for free with a refill plan. So you get your first brush head refill for free at getquip, Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson, getquip.com slash Erickson. It is a great toothbrush. It is the toothbrush that I have been using for multiple years. My wife and child use it as well. I really do recommend Quip. I really am a user, and I was before I started doing this commercial. That's why I really recommend it. Getquip.com. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The final hour of the day, at least. The Eric Erickson Show. Across the state of Georgia, phone lines are open. Uh, What is our phone number? 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. I am going to send out a recipe this week and I don't know what it is. I haven't decided. I sent out a cookie. I, I there's this my my mother-in-law introduced me to this cookie recipe. It's a sugar cookie, but it's a it's like a drop sugar. You use a teaspoon. They're tiny and they're so incredibly good and I can eat a whole batch of them and so I'm always hesitant to make them because they're that good. Um but I may have to send out that recipe. Um, I got to find it. It was written on a note card. Um, but you can text recipe to 33777 if you want. Uh, if you if you want to text recipe to 33777 because you haven't subscribed to it, you can. Uh, you'll also be able to get the ginger molasses cookie. I'll email you. What happens is you text the number and you get a text message back from me. Uh, Computer generated. I'm not actually here sending you the text messages uh, asking for your email address. When you send your email address, you get subscribed. Now, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to subscribe via text, I'm surprised by the number of people we have call 
who say they can't text message. Um, I, I didn't know that was still a thing here in the 21st century. Uh, but we have some time, time travelers from the 1700s who are unable to text. Uh, their flip phones won't do it. And you can go to theresurgent.com if you have a computing device. And the ginger molasses cookie recipe is up there. Um, I guess I should do an embed for the email list as well. Now, all right, uh, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to do so. Well, you know what? Um, I'm, I will, I'll get there eventually, this whole war on porn thing. But first, uh, I gotta, I gotta spend a little bit of time on the president and his reelection message. We've got some interesting uh, points out there. Uh, this coming from the vice president of the United States on jobs. We've made America great again. We've rebuilt our military. But wouldn't we they cut taxes, want that? rolled back regulations. Wouldn't the Democrats want that? They're Americans. Well, of course, of course they are. But we're talking about. We're talking about party leaders that have been having their way for a very long time. And here's a president that said, look, we're going to put American workers first. We're going to put America first on the world stage. And look at what we've done with the tax cuts, regulation, unleashing American energy, opening markets, standing for free and fair trade. Seven million new jobs as of Friday of this week. Unemployment at a 50-year low. Wages are rising at the fastest pace in 50 years. It's a great record for this president to run on. It's kind of remarkable, actually, that his uh, job approval rating is where it is right now, given that. Uh, happening this morning, uh, Darsha Nicole Kendrick is a member of the Georgia State House of Representatives. She has put this on her Facebook page. Ugh. How are the Democratic presidential candidates going to message on the economy given the past jobs report, which was better than expected? If we don't get it right on the economics or the economy doesn't take a nosedive, I fear we lose to President Imanut. And then a bunch of crying emojis. I'm not going to accuse her of talking down the economy, although that's all hoping the economy tanks. That is uh, how a lot of people are taking it this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm going to presume she does not want people to be out of a job, uh, but she is worried about uh, the economic impact of the jobs numbers, record number of jobs for November, lowest unemployment in 50 years. And how are the Democrats talking about it? Uh, engaging in policy discussions that actually would hurt the economy. I mean, it, we got to be honest here. Uh, this is a this is a serious issue uh, with the economy and the Democrats because they're they want us to believe that the only way to improve the situation in this country is to embrace socialism when the reality is that uh, we're doing quite well. Everybody has a job. Uh, they're, they're like five Americans unemployed right now. It's really remarkable, actually. And how do the Democrats message that other than talk down the economy, try to convince people the economy is not as good as it is, or try to warn people that a recession is coming? And you know, the reality is, this isn't sustainable. Uh, e the economy is cyclical. We are riding a wave uh, better than any other country on the planet right now. But it's probably not going to work. I, I do have to tell you, I was talking 
with a top Republican strategist the other day who said it really is remarkable, given the economic news, that the president's popularity is where it is. And he was really frustrated by it and just saying, you know, if the president would just delete his Twitter account, he would probably be doing better. But at the same time, the president uses his Twitter account to great effect on occasion. I did think it was notable. Yesterday, he broke a record, 100 tweets in one day. He's never done that. Most of them were retweets. And the media, by and large, wasn't buzzing about it all. Just noting that he had crossed the 100 tweets in a day um, threshold without really commenting on his tweets, which was kind of interesting, actually, I thought. Um, And how are they going to do it? How are they going to respond? How are the Democrats going to uh, make a case for changing the direction of the country? When the economy is doing as well as it is, and I don't know that they have an answer to that. So what they're doing instead is impeachment. Uh, This is Daniel Goldman. He is testifying right now before the House Impeachment Committee, uh, House Judiciary Committee, on impeachment. He and the Republican uh, counsel are talking. Here's Goldman from the Intelligence Committee discussing the impeachment situation, trying to get articles of impeachment. Investigations. One witness testified that during the second of the meetings, Ambassador Sondland began to review what the deliverable would be in order to get the meeting, referring to an investigation of the Bidens. The witness told the committee that the request was explicit, there was no ambiguity. And then Ambassador Sondland also mentioned Burisma, a major Ukrainian energy company that Hunter Biden sat on the board of. To the witnesses that testified before the committee, the references to Burisma was shorthand for an investigation into the Bidens. That's Daniel Goldman. The Republican is also testifying. I'm not spending a ton of time on it because it seems to me that impeachment is a foregone conclusion and that it is going to be a highly partisan affair. The Democratic talking point is somehow that uh, we actually have to um, that we actually have to vote for impeachment. Otherwise we're not patriots. Uh, that's not a compelling talking point to me. I don't think it's a compelling talking point to much of anyone and it's not going to change. Uh, it's, it's going to be silly. Meanwhile, the president is pushing out this, uh, happening, uh, the read the transcripts argument. The president uh, just tweeted out, read the transcripts and the uh, president's campaign team just tweeted this video out. President Trump released the transcript of his phone call with the president of Ukraine, proving all the dishonest leaks to the fake news media about a quid pro quo were totally false. My conversation with the president, the new president of Ukraine was perfect. There was no quid pro quo. There was nothing. It was a perfect conversation. That's the president of the United States uh, from uh, that's actually been a while back. uh, But the campaign pushing that out here in the last few minutes in combat. Here's the problem for the Democrats. It, It does appear that. This is has become a partisan issue. And it does appear that no one is changing their mind. And it does appear that. The only people who seem to be shifting in enthusiasm on impeachment are independent voters who are more and more likely to decide that they don't want impeachment, just settle it at the ballot box. Now, 
Here is, uh, is Stephen Castor. He is the Republican counsel talking about the Democrats' effort. Uh, the purpose of this hearing, as we understand it, is to discuss whether President Donald J. Trump's conduct fits the definition of a high crime and misdemeanor. It does not. Such that the committee should consider articles of impeachment to remove the president from office, and it should not. This case, in many respects, comes down to eight lines in a call transcript. Let me say clearly and unequivocally that the answer to that question is no. The record in the Democrats' impeachment inquiry does not show that President Trump abused the power of his office or obstructed Congress. To impeach a president who 63 million people voted for over eight lines in a call transcript is baloney. Democrats seek to impeach President Trump not because they have evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors, but because they disagree with his policies. This impeachment inquiry is not the organic outgrowth of serious misconduct. Democrats have been searching for a set of facts on which to impeach President Trump since his inauguration on January 20th, 2017. It's pretty clear they have. Now, here's Doug Collins, our own Doug Collins from here in Georgia. And Vendetta. Professor Turley testified last week, presumption is no substitute for proof. The current legal case for impeachment is not just woefully inadequate, but in some respects dangerous and the basis for impeachment of an American president. Today, what we were supposed to get was like what I'm, I love my friends on the, on the majority of this uh, committee said, Mueller. When we got the Mueller report, it didn't go real well. So we had a lot of hearings, didn't go real well. Then we finally got Bob Mueller, and they said, this is going to be the movie version. In fact, what happened, they did, my colleagues on the majority had uh, live readings from Capitol Hill. They made dramatic podcasts. They even wrote a comic book rendition that breathed life into the Mueller report. And it didn't work. So they brought Bob Mueller. This was the movie version. They told us Robert Mueller's testimony would be the thing that people watched and would be convinced. Guess what? They wasn't convinced. In fact, it fell flat. But you know, today, I guess, is the movie version of the Schiff Report. Except one thing, the star witness failed to show up. Mr. Nunez is here. His staff is here. The leading headline is there, Schiff Report. But where's Mr. Schiff? And Mueller, Robert Mueller testified. The Ken Starr Report, Ken Starr testified. The author of the Schiff Report is not here. Instead, he's sending his staff to do his job for him. I guess that's what you get when you're making up impeachment as you go. You know, to Doug Collins's point here, I think the Republicans do have a legitimate beef with the fact we now know the whistleblower coordinated with Schiff's team. And we now know for certain that Schiff hired an associate of the whistleblower the day after the whistleblower reached out to Schiff. Now, in fairness, and several friends of mine have pointed this out behind the scenes, you know, Devin Nunes coordinated with the whistleblowers in the Benghazi matter. They spent about a month coordinating on how they were going to roll out. What I think is so interesting is how the media so quickly latched onto this and to this day refuses to acknowledge impropriety in, in Benghazi. But there was a coordinated effort behind closed doors for a month leading up to the rollout of the hearings and everything else, just like in this situation. But the media didn't latch onto that. But what we did not have in the Benghazi situation that we have now 
is uh, hires from the Republicans based on that. We have that with Schiff, and Schiff still hasn't said who the whistleblower is. And there are more. There's more and more data that comes out that shows the whistleblower is deeply partisan. And I've got friends of mine who who believe the impeachment process is legitimate, who are Republican, but they don't like the president. They don't like the Democrats, but they say it's irrelevant. I actually disagree. I do think that there is relevance if reports are to be believed that the whistleblower did have partisan ties to the Democrats and regularly complained about the president. Maybe he got you this time. But I still think it matters because it does add character and context to this uh, that they really have been out to get the president the whole time, and it does undermine their case. I do think the whistleblower should testify, and I think he should be made public. Uh, and the fact that the Democrats don't want him to be made public suggests, in fact, that they understand the Republicans could undermine them uh, by pointing out the person's partisan ties. And I think if those partisan ties are there, and this person was, as some have claimed, a, a repeat uh whistleblower on the president and all of his complaints save this one were dismissed uh, and this was just a matter of got him this time i think that's relevant to the how this entire process has gone down andrew the level of coordination with adam schiff to trot this out and make it a media story remember the media started buzzing about this before the democrats came forward the media had been tipped off something was happening how did all of that play out this was a coordinated effort and that is part of the process it is a political process and because it's a political process the partisanship of the whistleblower should be assessed I can't complain given the typos that you guys point out that I make at the research and put in the Drudge Report, the top headline on brink of impeachment. Uh, there is no P. It's just impeachment. Uh, I, I'm wondering how many people are going to see the typo and concoct a conspiracy theory. We don't need to say any more about that. There's some breaking news here. The Supreme Court has allowed Virginia's ultrasound requirement law to go into effect. Um, It will um, encourage women to view ultrasounds uh, before having abortions so that they can see there actually is a living, breathing child in their womb. Uh, I want to move to the shooting in Pensacola. Um, There was a sailor from Georgia who has been killed. He went to Lakewood High School. Um, everyone called him Mo, Mohammed, uh, Haytham, uh, Haytham, I'm H-A-I-T-H-A-M is his last name. He was a track and field star known for long legs, big smile, and good high jump scores. He graduated in 2018 and joined the Navy. He went through boot camp and was assigned to flight crew training in Florida when he surprised his family in St. Petersburg by showing up for Thanksgiving, uh, the 19-year-old didn't look like a teenager anymore. He looked like a man all of a sudden. Um, he died, uh, and um, the people at Lakewood High School are mourning him. Um, I guess that that's, I thought that was the Georgian, um, but there was one other who died as well. Um, one of them from Georgia, uh, Joshua Watson graduated from the U S Naval Academy, looking forward to a military career as a pilot. Uh, he charged the shooter and then went and got help. Uh, and, uh, he is from enterprise, Alabama. Um, just a, it, it's tragic and it has, fundamentally disrupted our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Even the president uh, is apparently 
acknowledging that there are real problems there and something's going to have to happen as we continue to bring people from Saudi Arabia into the United States for training with the American military. And uh, they're undermining our national security. There's something wrong with Saudi Arabia. And as much as the country is uh, much more open than it has been, in fact, I saw that they're going to desegregate restaurants in Saudi Arabia, there are still problems there. Uh, here's the, the Cameron Walters from Richmond Hill is the 21-year-old airman who died in uh, the Naval Air shooting from Georgia. Cameron Walters of Richmond Hill the AJC, Jeremy Redmond, writes, was so proud when he finished basic training this year. 21-year-old airman apprentice, the Effingham County High School graduate, loved what he was doing, made a lot of friends among his fellow sailors, and wanted to become an engineer in the military. His younger brother, Mason, 17, remembered him that way. He was my best friend. He was always there for me whenever I needed him. Anyone who needed him, he was always there. Cameron Walters was one of the three sailors killed Friday in a shooting at Naval Air Station Pensacola. The Navy identified the other two as uh, Joshua Watson from Alabama and Muhammad uh, Haytham from St. Petersburg, Florida. All three were students at the Naval Aviation School Command. Eight others injured. The shooter was Second Lieutenant Muhammad Saeed Al-Shamrani, 21, of the Royal Saudi Air Force. He was studying there. Uh, he apparently had uh, tweets on social media praising al-Qaeda and attacking the United States. He had filed a complaint against his instructor for referring to him as porn stash. He had a big bushy mustache. He took no humor in it. Uh, people say that he had been much more friendly and uh, easygoing and then returned to Saudi Arabia and came back much more religious to the air school. People were wondering about him. There are some problems we're going to have to deal with as a country when it comes to Saudi Arabia. We need Saudi Arabia in large part because of stability in the Middle East against Iran. Saudi Arabia is the other major power. But if we're bringing Saudi citizens into this country and they are becoming terrorists in this country and killing our soldiers and sailors here in our bases, that's a problem or abroad or anywhere else. What's I, I do have to commend the Trump administration for one thing here. Uh, very briefly, if you will recall the Fort Hood shooting, it was very clear that the shooter at Fort Hood was a terrorist who had uh, been indoctrinated and was killing American soldiers. And the Obama administration couldn't admit that a terrorist attack had happened at Fort Hood, so they called it just workplace violence. This administration immediately came out and said they believed it was terrorism and we're going to act accordingly, and they have. And I'm appreciative of the Trump administration's honesty on this issue. Okay, I, I'm going to go where I didn't want to go on Twitter. Uh, so I've been actively involved. Well, I, I guess I should give you the phone number first, shouldn't I? Uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have been involved in, in the national conservative movement uh, really since 2004. Some friends of mine started Red State, asked me to come on board day one. Um, I, I moved it from redstate.org to redstate.com, became its first uh, full-time editor, and it became under my watch, I, yes, I'm bragging, but it's also true, the most influential writer center blog on Capitol Hill. Uh, everybody read us from John Boehner to George Bush to Donald Rumsfeld to um, 
Fred Thompson and, and John McCain to Mitt Romney to uh, Rick Santorum to Mike Huckabee, you, you name it. it, it all, all spectrums of the right read it. Um, our only requirement was you had to be pro-life right on the front page, but it was a place for conservatives to go and organize, uh, to motivate them, activate them, educate them, uh, debate each other on the issues of the day. And um, I, I have seen since 2004, one of the things that is common among the right and the left is, and both sides do this, they engage in arguments where they are convinced that they are moving the Overton window. Now, if you don't know what the Overton window is, Glenn Beck really brought it back to popularity in his discussions with it. The Overton window is the bounds of reasonable conversation. So, for example, uh, there are racists in this country, the white nationalists, who believe that we need to prioritize uh, white America above all others. And they have become more and more vocal about it. And they believe that they are shifting the Overton window, that uh, by by moving the Overton window, they are they're sliding over uh, the views of Americans so that the window opens on their views of race and white superiority and all that stuff. There are people on the left who believe that by embracing um, embracing, socialism or communism even uh, that they are pulling the Overton window in their direction so that it opens on socialism and socialism becomes a reasonable bounds of discussion. One of the people who actually did practice this in he actually practiced it. It wasn't the, the, um, theoretical. It wasn't intellectual um, circle of jerks. It was uh, Jesse Helms the wonderful senator from North Carolina who would take very hard-line stances on the Soviet Union and on social policy in this country. And his, his stridency on everything was impressive to behold. And Helms did it in the 1980s and 90s on, on issues of funding for abortion to Supreme Court picks to fighting the Soviet Union to American military expansion around the world, would take these strident positions and offer no room for compromise so that Ronald Reagan and others could say, I'm not where Jesse is, but you know, I'm over here. And it would allow the conversation to shift and make these others appear more mainstream. And that's something a lot of the people today miss is that uh, there was always the strident outlier like a Jesse Helms on one side or uh, on, on the left. Uh, there, there are the Louis Farrakhan's and the like who take strident positions outside the mainstream. But it allows people to shift in their direction comfortably by saying, I'm not as bad as that guy. Uh, here's my view. That's Overton window shifting. And, you know, Farrakhan's been interestingly successful in, in getting Democrats to hang out with him. In ways, the Democrats, if there was an equivalent on the right, David Duke on the right, can you imagine a Republican politician going to church with David Duke as opposed to the Democrats going to church with Louis Farrakhan? Talk about a media double standard. But, 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 but. What happens a lot on the left and the right 
is that they engage in this this navel gazing and in debating, and they're convinced that they are moving the Overton window when really they're not. They're engaged in an intellectual um, self pleasuring, shall we say? In case there are children listening. They're, they're not actually shifting any sort of window. They're not moving a debate. They're just yelling at each other internally. And on Saturday, I mentioned uh, coming home and turning on social media, and there's huge dust-up over pornography and whether the government should ban it. Now, it's not going to happen, and that's one reason I see no time spending a, a ton of uh, time on online writing and thinking about it. But I, I will share my thoughts with you here, largely because I don't want to talk about impeachment. I mean, honestly, I don't want to talk about the Democrats, and I don't want to talk about impeachment uh, because nothing is changing today. The House Democrats, they're going to impeach the president, and Joe Biden is still going to be the Democratic nominee as of right now until something major changes. Uh, Bloomberg's not going to be it. So we might as well talk about pornography. <laughs> um, hey, let's just say that it has no redeeming value. Uh, did you know, by the way, uh, so I, I, I did it for a short time, a, a TV series on, uh, it was the, it's now the blaze TV. It was CRTV. And one of the people I wanted to interview when we didn't get a chance to interview and we did six episodes and we didn't get to this episode. And I really wanted to was Sean McDowell who he and his father are at Biola, and they have spent a lot of time writing about this issue. And they've made a very interesting point. And if you're a dad uh, out there, I need you to pay attention real quick. If you're a guy or if you're a woman and, and you have a child and you, you're, you're married, listen to this, please. The silence is intentional to make sure you understand there's an important point coming. There is a lot of research done into how young boys are when they first encounter pornography. The average age is 10. Fourth or fifth grade. The average age is 10. Increasingly, it's happening earlier. The, the number has gone down. It had been 12. It's now 10. But there are 8- and 9-year-old boys who are discovering pornography. Either in their home, they accidentally find it by mistyping something in a web browser. They find it in, a, in a, the home of a friend with an older brother or a parent. Uh, they are encountering pornography. And increasingly, by the time a boy is 14 years old, he is regularly engaging with pornography. That may be a foreign concept to you. It is to me. I grew up in Dubai. It wasn't something we had. And then rural Louisiana, there was no internet. Um, but if you're a 14-year-old now and you have access to a, a tablet or a phone or a computer and the internet, you can easily access pornography. And you do not realize that over time it changes your brain. It, it actually does, like any other addiction. There is enough scientific research now to know that, that pornography is addicting. It draws you in and keeps you. And if you're a boy in particular, it messes up your relationship with girls. It messes up your relationship with women over time. Uh, it causes all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of problems. Pornography is not good. You know, there, there's more redeeming value to legalizing marijuana than there is to accessing porn. There is one group of boys 
who do not engage in porn. And it transcends, the access to porn transcends socioeconomic levels. This is something I did not know, and this is where the uh, Sean McDowell and his father have done a lot of research. Uh, access to porn transcends socioeconomic lines. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, American Indian. It doesn't matter uh, whether you live in an urban area or a rural area. It doesn't matter whether you go to church every Sunday or not. It doesn't matter. Every socioeconomic group Boys begin typically to encounter porn by the time they're 10, and by 14, they tend to be fully engaged with it. It doesn't matter if you have blockers in your house, like we have a circle device in our house to uh, regulate the time spent online with the kids and, and regulate what they see. There are ways they can get around it. They can go to other people's houses. They regularly encounter it. Oftentimes, boys do it now with their friends. They encounter it with their friends. There is one group of boys, all of the research, and it is consistent research for the last decade. There is only one group of boys that does not engage regularly with pornography. And again, it transcends rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, urban, rural, church-going, non-church-going there's only one group of boys that does not regularly engage in porn. Do you have any guesses? It's the ones who have a father who tells them it's bad. That's it. That is the only thing researchers have been able to find. That is the only data point. That is the only consistent point of uh, getting boys to not engage with porn is fathers telling them it's bad, explaining to them what is happening, explaining to them how wrong it is, explaining to them why it's harmful. That's the group of boys that stay away from it. So if you are a father, if you are a wife whose husband is in the home, a mom who, who you're, you're, you're in regular contact even if you're divorced but with the dad— you should have this discussion with them that it is a father telling their son it's bad is the chief indicator of a young man or a boy who will not develop a habit of looking at pornography. It is that pervasive. There is a debate on the right about trying to get the government to ban it or make it much more difficult. And I got to tell you, I'm not opposed to banning it or making it more difficult to get. I'm, I'm not. I don't think it'll happen, though. And I don't know why, when there are so many other things that are more likely to happen, why we should spend intellectual capital on this. We live in a country where half the country is okay with killing children. Uh, as long as you don't call it murder and you don't have to see the child, everyone's okay. half the country is okay with it. The intellectual elite in this country are totally on board the abortion agenda. There is something profoundly broken in this country at a moral level. Now, we ban murder in this country, even though murder is still committed, uh, because we as a society recognize that uh, murder is taking the life of another person. But there are too few people in this country willing to recognize the harm that access to pornography can do at an interpersonal level. We just look at it as, as a decision, and you've made a bad decision, and it affects you as opposed to affecting other people in the societal fallout. 
So I'm not sure why we need to get in a big argument online or offline with social policy on banning something that is not going to be banned. And uh, you can say, well, we're not going to ban abortion either, except we're making good strides with abortion. The problem is uh, we have the people on our side with the abortion argument because we have spent years pointing out uh, that abortion is taking the life of another. We don't have that with pornography because no one has invested the intellectual time and resources to make that case. So go make the case if you want to ban on it. But you just do that now and say, hey, we should be banning this stuff. It sounds very much to a lot of people like you're some sort of Puritan and no one's going to listen to you. I'm not philosophically opposed to the idea, but the reason people want it banned is because it's become so prevalent and accessible. And the reason it's become so prevalent and accessible is the same reason that means a law will do no good. We are in a moral crisis in this country. The number of people who go to church is plummeting. The number of people who stay in church. There's actually some good news out about that, but in mainline churches, that too is plummeting. The number of people who acknowledge a religion is plummeting. The number of people who recognize a universal basic morality is collapsing in this country. And ultimately, the rise of porn and the embrace of porn in this country has to do with a moral brokenness that is not going to be fixed by a law. At least with abortion, you can say, you know, this is actually taking the life of another human being. We must prohibit it because we believe life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in this country for all Americans. And that child, though may be in the womb, is, is an American and should be protected. What's the argument like that with porn? I don't think this gets the right anywhere, particularly at a time the right is already divided about almost everything. Fighting on this issue, one, it's not helpful, but two, uh, why waste the intellectual resources on this argument when we know it's going to happen, not going to happen? You know, the right spent years making the moral case for reversing Roe versus Wade before engaging legislatively on the issue. They need to do the same on, on the porn argument if, if that's where they want to go. And I'll be with them. That's fine. But in the meantime, let's not forget that even with abortion, even with this issue, even with so many other issues, uh, active parents involved in the lives of their kids, steering them morally will make a bigger, bigger impact long term than banning something that will still be accessible from other countries on the Internet. And then there's the other issue. You give the government the power to ban it and enforce it. You're giving the government new powers that they will eventually use on things you like. Never trust your opponents or the government with power you don't want turned against you. And that, too, should be part of the conversation. Can we just acknowledge, please, that though Georgia lost LSU, they will get to go to New Orleans for New Year's Day. I mean, if there is a consolation, uh, you get to be on Bourbon Street for New Year's Eve, which is a crazy time. I say that as a native of the state. Uh, in fact, I took my wife. You want to talk about crazy? Uh, I took my wife to New Orleans 
on New Year's Eve 1999 uh, for the rollover to 2000. We did not stay. We were out of the city before sundown. I went to, to visit a friend of mine who lived down there, and it was already insane um, at noon in the French Quarter. And so you'll at least be able to to be there with people from Baylor. So And, and look, the people from Baylor, the good Baptists that they are, um, they'll, they'll leave plenty for you to drink in New Orleans. <laughs> and then LSU is coming back. You know, I, I, I got an email from the Mercedes Benz stadium. Did I want tickets, uh, to the LSU Oklahoma game? And I thought, yes, I did. And I clicked the link and they were 1500 bucks a piece. And I thought, no, I, I, I guess I don't. Um, I, I, I suppose that I do not want $1,500 tickets, uh, to go, I mean, I would love to go to the LSU game, but I don't think so for fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, yikes! Well, I'm looking online, and Drudge still has not updated the impeachment. Now, the Golden Globe nominations have come out, and Netflix is dominating uh, the list. And I gotta tell you, I don't think I've seen a single. Uh, one of these movies uh, now for uh, for the TV I have Succession, Game of Thrones, The Crown. Uh, they're all in there, and that's fantastic. I think they were great. Uh, Chernobyl gets some nominations, but uh, they got. Uh, I haven't seen the Joker. I intend to see the Joker. I just haven't yet uh, that nomination. Um, and then there are a bunch of other. Uh, nominations, the Irishman. I haven't seen the Irishman and where are the other ones? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get the, the awards list here. Nope. I, I haven't seen. Oh, and now there's a huge controversy that the, um, no female directors were nominated. No female directors. Parasite. Uh, I don't even know what parasite is. Uh, the farewell pain and glory. Uh, I've never heard of any of these movies. And I it's not that I don't go to the movies. I go to the movies quite frequently. But I haven't seen any of these movies that have been nominated. Now, there will be a couple, I'm sure, that I actually will wind up seeing, like The Joker. I intend to see Joker. Um, I intend to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It got nominated for Golden Globe. But some of these other movies, I have no idea. And this is an increasing phenomenon with Hollywood where people in Hollywood make these artsy movies that nobody in regular America actually watches. And I, and I say regular America intentionally uh, because a, a ton of us, we're, we're not going to go see them. So best motion picture drama, a 1917, which by the way, uh, I intend to go see 1917. It's, uh, I am told an incredible movie and the two popes as well, which will be on Netflix, the Irishman Joker and marriage story. I don't know what marriage story is. The Irishman. I've had several people tell me they've seen it, but it takes forever to go see, uh, the best motion picture, music or comedy Dolomite is my name. Jojo rabbit knives out once upon a time in Hollywood and rocket man. All right, Knives Out. Uh, Chris Burns tells me I need to go see it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I want to see Rocket Man. It was good. Jojo Rabbit, I, I I don't really want to see it. The Dolomite is my name, maybe. That's a Netflix one. But then some of these others, I just, who are these people? At least Ford versus Ferrari 
is in there with a Christian Bale nomination for Best Performance and Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. Um, some of these others, so I just, Hollywood seems like it has lost touch. Consider the Joker, by the way. Uh, a very good movie. I haven't seen it, but I got a bunch of friends who have, and people in Hollywood despise that movie. I'm kind of shocked it got a nomination, and yet it should, given the popularity of it. It's a billion-dollar picture now, and yet in Hollywood, they don't like the movie because it connects to the masses.